I want to show you a book that uh, came off my dad's shelf. It's entitled Questions People Have Asked Me. And it's by a previous editor of the Review and Herald called Francis D. Nickel. And if you can manage to get a copy of this book, I'd highly recommend it. This has still got the price tag of $3 on it. So I got it for pretty cheap somewhere. Uh, but if you can get your hands on it, it's a very good book. And the premise is that the author, Francis, he simply answers questions that other Adventists have written to him. As the editor of the Review and Herald, he had lots of people uh, submitting questions uh, that they were interested to have answers to. And I find it really fascinating because it's an interesting time capsule of what Seventh-day Adventism was like in the year 1959. That's when this book was published. So just on the cusp of getting into the 1960s, it reveals a lot about the mindset, the culture, and how people viewed the church back in this time. So it's a very interesting time capsule that we can observe and learn from. And I think it's a very useful resource because most of these questions are asked very sincerely. They're asked uh, with a very genuine heart. And most of the questions are, are quite standard. There, there are questions on doctrine. There are questions on uh, how to conduct church. There are lots of very good, solid questions. But in there as well, there are lots of we might say unusual questions, questions that we probably wouldn't think about, uh, questions that if I were to give to you today, you would probably brush off pretty easily with a, a yes or a no, or that doesn't really matter. But it reveals the mindset of these Adventists from this time period. Here are some examples of these uh, perhaps unusual questions. One person asked, is it right to say amen during the service? They wanted to know whether it was, well, there we go, <laughs> whether they were allowed to say amen. One person asked, can we refer to fellow members as sir instead of brother or sister? So they're wondering, oh, is it, is it a, a sin to not call someone else a brother or a sister? If I call them miss, missus, sir, mister, is that a wrong thing to do? Another person asked, is it right to drive a car to church? I think we all answered that question for ourselves this morning. Another one asked, is it wrongful to be joyful at Christmas time? Yeah, when's Christmas time? Is it the whole month of December? I'm not sure. Another person asked, is it moral to have a dog or a cat as a pet? Someone else asked, is it sinful to chew gum in church? Another asked, am I allowed to not pass on a chain letter prayer? So this is back in the day before email, but... We would know it now. You get an email and it says, here's a prayer, here's a Bible verse. Please pass this on to six of your friends. If you don't, you'll be in trouble with God. And someone was genuinely concerned about this. They said, there's a threat here that says, if I don't pass on this chain letter, uh, God will be unhappy with me. Do I have to pass it on? Is it bad if I don't pass it on? Another asked, should those who arrive early for church sit in the middle of the pew? And their reasoning was, if they don't sit in the middle and they sit on the end, then people who come in later struggle to get into the middle. Now, that's just a question of logic, but they were asking about whether this was a moral concern, whether it was morally wrong for someone to sit in the middle of the pew, if they, uh, if, in the uh, side of the pew, 
if they didn't arrive early for church? Now, looking at these questions, most of us, we'd answer these pretty easily. We'd say, of course, you can drive your car to church. There's nothing wrong with being happy during the month of December. You're fine owning a a dog or a cat as a pet. Yes, you can say amen. We would answer most of these questions with relative ease. But it shows what these Adventists were wrestling with, what types of questions and concerns they had at this time. And overall, though, I was fascinated by this recurring theme with all of these questions. See if you can pick it up. I noticed a lot of the language was language such as this. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it moral? Is it sinful? Am I allowed? Now, most of these questions we'd say, you don't really need such language. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it moral? Is it sinful? When we're talking about issues like, can you be happy in December? Or can you refer to someone as simply sir instead of brother or sister? We probably wouldn't say that's a a great moral issue. And yet all of the language of these questions implied they wanted to know whether, according to God's law, this certain action or behavior was right or wrong, whether it was sinful or whether it was permissible. There's this yearning to know what the law of God has to say on these issues. And we know, in fact, a lot of the examples we looked at, God doesn't really explicitly say anything. And yet there's this yearning, this desire to know, but what does it say in the law? Am I doing this right according to the law? There's this this specter, this sense of really legalism. What does it have to do with the law? What does the law tell me? And as I said, there are plenty of really good questions in here to do with health and doctrine and Christian living. And these are big issues that we need to take seriously and should study and analyze in contrast with God's law. But these questions that we looked at, they're minute, tiny details. They're not big picture items. And yet there's this hungering to find every minute detail that one can find in God's law so that it can be kept 100% perfectly to the exact letter. And that's unfortunately the trap that legalism puts before us. It teaches that if you do not keep the law perfectly, then you cannot be saved. Legality and perfect obedience to the law are absolutely necessary for salvation. And so if we have this mindset that we have to perfectly obey the law of God in order to be saved, of course we're going to ask these types of questions on these minute details. Because if we slip up even into the minute details, we are at risk of no longer being saved. When we think of legalism, often one of the very first images that come into our heads is that of the Pharisees. They were the pioneers of this. And Jesus, very, with good reason, rebuked the Pharisees for burdening the people with their attitudes of legalism. What happened was after the Jews returned from Babylonian exile, they were so concerned with getting deported again. The, the, the reason they got deported to Babylon was they, follow, they did not follow God's law. And so the religious leaders of the time, they threw themselves into studying God's law with such vigor. They said, we cannot be exiled again. The nation cannot go through this again. 
if we ended up in Babylon because we did not follow the law of God, we need to follow the law of God exactly 100%. But their attitude, unfortunately, went a bit further than that. They began to think, well, what if we can put in preventative measures so we don't even get close to breaking the law of God? And these rules that began to be invented by humans, by ordinary men, uh, not by God, were called the Kumra. Uh, it's literally a word which means fence. So they would put these Kumra or fence laws around the laws that were given to Moses. And the idea was that if you placed these extra rules, these made up rules that were not given by God, these fence rules around the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the, the books of the law, then someone wouldn't even get close to breaking the Torah because the Qumran laws prevented them from doing so. So they put this fence around the law of God, but in doing so added extra rules and laws that God had never instructed. For example, we see uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry, that the, they have put these extra burdens of rules on the Sabbath. You're only allowed to walk so far. You weren't allowed to pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. And the, the explicit detail, the minute details that they went into is absolutely absurd. Here are just a few examples of the, the rules that they came up with, these fence rules to prevent people from breaking the law, uh, the law of the Torah. One is talking about what are you allowed to use as fuel to light a candle on Sabbath? It says, with what may the light or the Sabbath lamp and with what may they not light it? They may not use cedar fiber or uncarded flax or raw silk or a wick of uh, a bast or a basket or a wick of the desert or duckweed, or pitch, or wax, or castor oil, and it goes on and on and on. It gives about every single type of fuel you could think of and says, you're not allowed to. And I go into these minute details trying to describe what you can and can't use to light a candle on Sabbath. So let's say you lit the candle Friday before Sabbath comes, a big gust of wind comes and your, your candle's gone, well, these rules would say you're not allowed to relight the candle. Tough luck, go through the night without any light. Another Sabbath rule was a woman may loop up her cloak with a stone or a nut or a coin, provided that she does it before the Sabbath. I think a modern day equivalent would be you can only wear pants to church if you've done up the zipper and done up the button Friday afternoon. Or you can only wear the pants if you've already threaded the belt through them. That's the kind of level of detail they were trying to go into. We don't even want to get close to breaking the Sabbath. So no lighting lamps with any types of fuels. And we'll tell, describe every single type of material you could use. We don't even want to consider putting on clothes in the morning. Uh, maybe that will be breaking the Sabbath if we go to a bit of effort to put our clothes on. And so they continued to just create rule upon rule to burden the people. In fact, later uh, in this, uh, the top one says Mishnah 2.1. In 2.7, it says that one of the reasons that women die in childbirth is because they lit a lamp on Sabbath. 
That was how strictly they took these rules. So strict were they that if a, a woman died in childbirth, one of the reasons she was suspected to have died was she must have lit a lamp on Sabbath. Everyone knows you're not allowed to do that. So let's have a look then at how Jesus addressed these rules. Jesus comes after about 300 years of these rules have been accumulating over and over and over again. And we're going to see what Jesus' response is to these people in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is a really uh, confronting chapter. It definitely puts into perspective for us who Jesus was. Often we forget the fact that Jesus was quite in the face of the religious leaders at the time, these Pharisees. Uh, often people misportray Jesus as this kind of uh, happy-go-lucky hippie, so to speak. But the, the Jesus here in Matthew 23, he's up front and he doesn't shy away from saying combative and true things. That's ultimately what makes the difference. What he is saying is true. This chapter is entitled, Woe to the Scribes and Pharisees. And in verse 16, he says this, Woe to you blind guides. Already, he's not off to a very uh, complimentary start to the Pharisees. They're blind, spiritually blind. Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform that vow. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? So here we see a perfect example of the legalism, the the law upon law that the Pharisees were placing on the people. They'd come up with this complex system of vows. Now, back in Exodus, God had said not to give a vow on him. You can't. Make a, you can't swear something or make an oath or a vow based on God or his name. So the Pharisees came up with this complex system of vows that aren't based on God. You don't have to invoke God's name. But some vows, depending on what you've made your vow on, some were binding and some were not. So, for example, they said in verse 16, if you swear or make a vow by the temple, it's nothing. That's not a, a binding oath. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you're obliged to fulfill that oath that you made. Now, notice that's completely arbitrary. Where did they get this idea from? Not from God. They didn't get this from anywhere. They just made it up. They pulled it out of thin air. But it it reveals their lack of understanding of who God even really is. Why would the gold in the temple be more important than the temple itself. I mean, the temple is the house of God. It's where his presence dwells. And Jesus himself says, why do you think the gold is even that special? It's special because it's in the temple. The temple is what sanctifies the gold, which it's what makes the gold holy and set apart. There's nothing inherent in the gold. It's the temple. So they can't even understand the significance of the temple. They, they get things backwards. They go, ah, oh, if you... Make an oath by the temple, doesn't matter. But the gold, well, you have to commit to that promise. Let's uh, continue reading 18 and 19. Jesus continues, you say, whoever swears by the altar, ah, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform that. 
fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? So again, they've got it backwards. They go, well, if you make an oath on the altar, no big deal. But if you make an oath on a sacrifice on the altar, well, you, you have to keep that promise. Again, it's arbitrary. They pulled it out of thin air. And it shows they don't understand the significance of the altar. Prior to this lamb sacrifice or goat, whatever animal it was, being brought to the temple, it was just an ordinary animal. There was nothing special, sacred, set apart about it. But the altar, its very purpose is to do all with the house of God. So they even get that backwards. The altar is more important in terms of its sacredness. Like the gold being sanctified by the temple, the sacrifice is sanctified by being placed upon the altar. And he continues, Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So they don't even accomplish their goal. The whole idea of creating this complex system of vows and oaths was to avoid having to take an oath on God and his name. But Jesus says you didn't even, you didn't even fulfill that goal because when you swear on the temple, you do swear by him who dwells in it. He goes, when you do swear by heaven, you swear by the throne of God and he who sits on it. So they're not even accomplishing the goal they set out to do. When one does make an oath or a vow by the temple or by heaven or by the altar, they are swearing by the God who is behind those things. So the Pharisees don't even achieve this arbitrary goal that they've established. Verse 23, this is an absolutely scathing remark. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus is saying these people are trying to be so strict to the law, they're trying to be such goody-two-shoes that they'll get their individual uh, cloves of mint and every tenth leaf they'll tithe to God. Oh, yeah, I pay my tithe. I go, I go into my garden and I pick every tenth leaf. And yet they're able to do this and yet do not care about the poor, the needy. In fact, uh, throughout the chapter we're told that these are the people, the Pharisees, who are actually preying on the vulnerable. And so Jesus says, it's all well and good that you tithe your mint and your anise and cumin but you have completely lost sight of the central focus of the law, which is justice and mercy and faith. Ultimately, love. Where is the love in these actions? There is none. Notice again, there's this obsession with minute details. Every tenth leaf. Verse 24. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's a amusing image. Why are they straining out a gnat? What they're trying to do is uh, the uh, God gave the, the Jews a law 
when they ate meat, had to be free of any blood. Kosher. And so Jesus is saying, you get a gnat and you want to make it kosher, so you, you, you strain out any blood from this tiny, tiny little gnat. But he calls them hypocrites because he says you'd go to all that effort in these minute details and yet you'd go and swallow a camel, an unclean uh, animal. You'd go and do this terrible thing, but you want to sweat the details and if, oh, there might be some blood in this gnat, I better strain this tiny little gnat to make sure it's kosher. Jesus is really uh, poking holes in their theology and their understanding of who God is. So what are the problems that Jesus exposes here with this attitude of legalism? Well, it focuses on the minute details while neglecting the most central aspects of God's law, justice, mercy, and faith. It constantly craves rules and laws because it believes it leads to salvation. That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Let's make more rules, more laws. If we want to be saved, we have to keep all of them. And let's make even more rules to put around the ones God already gave us because that's, that's the way we're going to be saved. And notice, what's the motivation here? It's fear. This isn't being done out of love or gratitude towards God. It's out of fear of punishment. It's believed that salvation comes through only perfect obedience. And so we have to make sure we keep all of the rules. It creates a spirituality which Jesus says is ultimately corrupt and dead. So imagine my surprise as I'm thinking on this topic. And I hear all of this same rhetoric, this same language of legalism, legalism, coming out of the mouth of a hip, trendy, skinny jeans-wearing celebrity pastor. This is the complete opposite lifestyle, fashion, culture, and approach to the Christian faith of the Pharisees. Complete opposite. And yet, everything he was saying was exactly the same. The pastor in question was uh, the ex-Hillsong pastor, Carl Lentz. He's famous as being the pastor to celebrities such as the singer Justin Bieber. And he was being interviewed by a popular YouTuber. And throughout the interview, the interviewer kept asking questions like, what is Christianity about? Tell me what's the most important thing in your faith. Tell me, what what do you like to do as a church? Why does your church exist? And this was the language that was used over and over and over again. He said things like, all you have to do is love people. You must help those in need. We're all about doing the right thing. You should obey God. Now, by themselves, all of these are good things. We should help those in need. We should strive to love people. But as he continued to repeat these things over and over and over again, I thought to myself, why does this language feel so legalistic? And I began to pick up on the reason why. Most of these words are all, we'll say, verb or action words. Words about doing things. All you have to do. You must do the right thing. You should. And I thought to myself, this is the exact same language of the Pharisees. You must, you should, you must do. And I think what really hammered this home was that during a one and a half hour interview, not once... 
did this pastor give an explicit or full explanation of the significance of the cross? Nothing about Jesus, nothing about the, what the cross means to the Christian life. Every time he was asked what the Christian faith is about, he said it's all about doing, doing good things, doing the right thing. And I thought to myself, that's just another form of legalism. The cross has not been mentioned once. And he's said that uh, a perfect summary of the Christian faith is doing the right thing. Do, do, do. Work, work, work. And I was still confused, I'll admit, because again, this guy was not anything like the Pharisees. He didn't look like it. He uh, certainly wouldn't have fit in their crowd. So why was his language so similar. I want to take us back to Matthew twenty three twenty three, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I want to put forward to us that when we over-prioritize or over-emphasize one of these attributes of justice and mercy, or when we neglect one of these, we put ourselves in peril of falling into two different sides of legalism. Let's begin first with an over-prioritization of justice. I've put justice and mercy, mind you, in quotation marks because I don't feel that they're accurate representations of justice and mercy. When they're taken to their absolute extremes and when they're uh, distanced from one another, they become deficient in in their definitions. So in the eyes of someone who is primarily justice focused, what is everything about? It's about the law, strict obedience to the law, avoiding the penalty of the law. And bringing swift judgment upon those who have broken the law. We certainly see that's the attitude of the Pharisees. They're looking for reasons and excuses to penalize people for breaking the law. As we said, there's this focus on the minute details, tithing every mint leaf. And this emphasis on justice alone, you'll notice, is detached from the cross. That's why the line is dotted. They're not actually connected. This understanding of justice is one that is detached from the cross. Because if we understood justice in terms of the cross, we would know that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law on behalf of humanity. That we don't have to keep all of the law perfectly in order for our our salvation. We're We're incapable of doing this. So Christ did it on our behalf. Understanding justice in the light of the cross helps us understand that judgment has fallen on Christ so it doesn't have to fall on us. So we don't follow the law out of this fear that the hammer's going to come down on us. We serve God out of love and gratitude for what he has done. But again, because this justice-focused legalism detaches itself from the cross, that threat of judgment constantly looms over those who ascribe to this. They have to constantly obey the law. They have to find every minute detail of the law because if not, the cross isn't going to save them. The cross is not in this picture. 
All of the responsibility is on them. So these are all of the flaws that come with an overemphasis and a neglect of mercy when we only prioritize justice. We obey for false reasons. We do it out of an attitude of fear. We have this obsession with every minute detail because we need it for our salvation. And oddly enough, bad behavior gets excused. It's, it's a complete hypocritical thing. But this is what Jesus says. He goes, you do all the minute things, but you don't prioritize the weightier matters. And the Pharisees here, they're described as actually praying, not just not helping those in need, but praying on those in need and extorting them and taking and stealing from them. And why can they do that? They get to say, I'm allowed to do these things because look at all the good works I've done. Uh, as though it's some kind of coupon or voucher system. You get enough good, good coupons. If you want to do something bad, you just check in a good one. It goes completely against the idea of perfectly fulfilling the law. But that's the, in, that's the inherent contradiction, the hypocrisy in this view that Jesus said. You do all these good things, but you only do it so you can excuse your poor behavior. What about the, the opposite side? Uh, a side that is too, too overemphasizing of mercy. This is the trendy, popular, celebrity Christianity that we see in the world today. This is what we see from the many big churches full of dozens of people. There's a mistake in over-prioritizing mercy. In, in the eyes of these people, law is not really that important. But doing the right thing is. Being loving and generous, forgiving. These are all things that the mercy side tells us we should do. Yeah, we're all about doing good things and loving and mercy. But if you were to ask someone, why do we do those good things? An individual on this side would be incapable of telling you. Why? Because we do do these things because it is in the law of God. But the mercy side, yeah, it's not that concerned with the law. We don't want to get into that. So they can't give a good reason why we should do good things. There's no, there's no general, uh, there's no justification given it's just unknown really this is kind of the morality that we see in our secular world today if you go up to most people most people will tell you yes you should be loving you should be kind you should be generous and if you ask them why they don't really have a reason well i guess it's better off if everyone were nice to each other well some people might be better off if they were less nice to others there's no moral justification for why we do these good things. It's just you have to do them. Notice again, this is detached from the cross. If we are rooted in the cross, the reason we will desire to do good things is in a loving response to what God has done for us. We want to be loving. We want to be generous. We want to be kind because God has been loving, generous and kind to us. What we do is a response to what God has already done in our lives. But if we detach ourselves from that and we just tell people do good things they, and we don't tell them any reason why they should, doing good things becomes a burden. It's a burden when they're not even sure why they have to do these things. Notice as well, uh, uh, we could summarize this perhaps as moralism. And that's really the the 
popular or the current ethical system our secular world uses, moralism. Yeah, do good things, but you do it in order to achieve salvation. And furthermore, this side heavily overlooks the, the, the true weight and gravity of sin. God is simply this God who is always forgiving. He's incapable of giving justice or judgment. He doesn't have a divine law. He doesn't have any standard. This God is all mercy and no justice. And a God that has no justice is actually an unloving God. So what are the faults of the mercy? The over-prioritizing over of mercy? Well, there's this false love. Yeah, we want to love people, but they can't give you a good reason why they should love because it's detached from the cross. Rather than having this attitude of fear, it actually instills an attitude of complacency. Ah, God will forgive me. No need to stress. Ah, she'll be right. While the justice side obsesses with the minute details, the mercy side lacks a big picture view. That big picture is the cross and everything in it. But because that's absent, there's this lack of a bigger picture. And again, notice a common trait. Bad behavior is excused. Why? God forgives. God doesn't ever bring down the hammer of justice. I can do whatever I want. I'll be fine. So what should we strive for then? If these two extremes, focusing only on justice, only on mercy, what should we strive to look at then? Well, we said that we need to be rooted in the cross. The cross is what's going to bring these two things together. And the cross is the perfect example of where justice and mercy meet. Justice, God puts the penalty of sin on Jesus. Jesus takes the penalty on behalf of humanity. So justice is served at the cross. But then because that justice has been served, God can forgive. He can show mercy to those that he loves. So the cross is the perfect example of this union between justice and mercy, which Jesus says are the weightier matters of the law. These are the central tenets of the law of God, justice, mercy, love. When we're concentrating and focusing on the cross, what does it do for us? It instills in us a desire for true obedience and love. We worship God. We follow the law of God. Not because we have to to be saved. Not because, well, it's just a good thing to do. We have no explanation for why. Because the law of God is good. It's a perfect reflection of his character. And now having been saved by God... We want to reflect that character too. We want to keep that law of God to glorify and honor him. Rather than having an attitude of fear or an attitude of complacency, it gives us this attitude of gratitude, thankfulness to God. Everything we do in our lives is in this response of thankfulness to what God has done. There's a balance between the details and the big picture. Both are important. Let's, let's not deny the fact we need a big picture view of Scripture and it's important to go deep and analyze verse by verse, get all that we can from the word. Details are important, but we need a balance, not getting obsessed. And we don't want to lack a big picture either. We want to have a holistic understanding of the word of God. And finally, poor behavior is not excused, but more than that, there's no longer a desire for poor behavior. I think that's a crucial difference. In either side, Bad behavior is excused, and that's because the person in that camp 
wants that. They want to get away with bad things. Whereas someone who is rooted at the cross will no longer have that desire to excuse poor behavior. It's very easy for us to slip into either one of these two extremes, either camp. And Satan is happy for us to land in one or the other. If he can burden us with this idea of legalism, he's more than content. If he can take us away from the cross, he's more than happy. Whichever side of legality a person falls on, whichever extreme they go to, the end result is legalism is all, always a burden. I want to conclude by reading uh, just a short segment from the novel Pilgrim's Progress. And in it, the main character, Christian, he's beginning his journey to the celestial city, which is a symbol for heaven. And he has on his shoulders this big uh, burden. It's often pictured like a, a, a big sack or uh, a bag that is weighty and heavy on his shoulders. And he wants to get rid of this burden, which, of course, is a symbol of his sin. And as he is progressing towards the celestial city, he's met by a gentleman called Worldly Wise Man. Here is uh, the, the quote from the book. Christian asks, I know what I want. It is to ease my heavy burden. Wise Man responded, why would you go this way when there are so many dangers ahead? Especially since if you have the patience to listen to me, I could direct you to obtain what you desire without any of the dangers. Krishna replied, please, sir, tell me this secret. Worldly wise men replied, well, in that village just there, named Morality, there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality or Legalism. He's a very judicious man, a man of very good name that has helped many men remove burdens such as yours. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, as he began climbing up the hill, it became very difficult. And it seemed so high and the cliff so steep that Christian was afraid to venture any further. His burden now seemed even heavier to him than while he was away. And he began to be sorry that he had taken worldly wise man's advice. But then the man evangelist came to Christian and said, what are you doing here, Christian? Christian replied, uh, uh, evangelist said, legality is not able to set you free from your burden. No man has ever had their burden removed by him, nor will there ever be such a man. You cannot be justified by the works of the law, for by the deeds of the law, no man living can be rid of his burden." Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is a stranger and Mr. Legality a cheat. Christian, he continues his journey after falling into this trap. And he does get rid of his burden. And it's removed at the cross. The cross is the one place where the burden of the Christian is removed. My challenge for us this morning is, it, as we said, it is so easy for us to sometimes fall in to these traps that Satan puts before us. He wants, us to, he wants to direct us to the town of morality and to go and visit Mr. Legality. 
and promises that they can both help us remove the burden off our backs. But as Evangelist says, legality has never helped a man be free of his burden, nor will there ever be such a man. By the deeds of the law, no man can be rid of his burden. Only through the cross are we able to be free from our burden. Are we clinging to the cross? Are we taking seriously this perfect demonstration of justice and mercy and love that God has put before us? Have we fully accepted the reality of that cross? Or are we still holding on to a vain hope that perhaps our good works can contribute in some way to our salvation? Are we obsessing over the minute details? Do we have an attitude of complacency to God and his law? Do we excuse our poor behavior with all the good behavior coupons that we've accumulated? I think we should all reflect on our spiritual lives, see where our relationship is with God. There's always room for us to continue to grow in that connection with God. And so I hope that each one of us will go away and think, where are we on this, on this scale, on this chart? My hope and prayer is that each one of us will be right in the middle there at the cross.